Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. What makes us happy? Well, not living through a pandemic in January would be a start. In large parts of Europe and the US, the midwinter this year is feeling particularly bleak. But a lot of the time we're wrong about what makes us happy, and that's encouraged governments to get it wrong as well. They focus on growing GDP, making the economy larger, but we would all be genuinely better off if they focused on what makes us happy instead. When the respected British economist Richard Layard started saying things like this in the early 2000s, it was considered rather odd. But these days, policymakers around the world take mental health seriously enough to worry quite a lot about the psychological scarring that may be caused by the pandemic and how that could worsen the hit to the economy. In a few minutes, you can hear Layard himself explain how governments could really build back better and build back happier. But first, here's our France economy reporter, William Horobin, on the mental health legacy of COVID-19. I've been a psychologist for 10 years and I've never seen this kind of thing. We had no idea where this could lead to. Man is, by nature, relatively strong at picking himself up and this is what happened with the first lockdown. There was really rebounded this way. This is happening to us, but it doesn't matter. We'll get there, we'll start again. But the second blow was the coup de grace. Céline Lucas staffs the APESA hotline in France, providing psychological support for entrepreneurs in distress. Since France entered a second lockdown in November, some of her six-hour shifts have become relentless. As soon as she hangs up, the phone rings again, and the distress and despair of French business leaders is intensifying. Céline Lucas is on just one of the front lines of a mental health crisis that is emerging across the globe in the COVID-19 pandemic. There are multiple causes, the threat of a bankruptcy for business owners and rising unemployment for workers, not to mention the psychological strain for vast numbers of people from being confined to their homes. From an economic view, researchers have been looking at mental health at least since the 1930s, when studies established a link between an increase in suicide rates and the economic slump following the Wall Street crash. In recent times, the focus has been on a more complex interplay. Mental ill health is both a symptom of economic malaise and a cause. And that raises the question of what kind of legacy the pandemic will leave behind. Christopher Prince, a Labour analyst at the OECD, has spent a decade grappling with the links between mental health, employment and the economy. His research suggests that poor mental health Cost developed economies a staggering 4% of GDP in any given year. For the US, that's more than $800 billion. Basically, there's two main reasons. One is the very high prevalence of mental health problems in the population. So with, as we know from all kinds of studies, this is about one in five of the population at any point in time. So the sheer number creates high cost. And the second factor is that those who have mental health conditions, they do face challenges in terms of their education outcomes, in terms of their employment outcomes. So that is, these two things together explain the high cost, right? So we have a lot of people and everyone who has health issues is at high risk of having uh, experienced really poor education or employment outcomes, which 
cost the economy a lot. Part of the cost is accounted for by measuring direct government spending on care and support for people not working for mental health reasons. But to get closer to the full cost requires more complex estimates of lost productivity in the workplace and lost tax revenues. It might be simple to add up costs of sick leave, but not underperformance, or the impact of what is known as presenteeism, that unproductive time you spend in an office, or how co-workers are affected by the problems of others. These 4% that we um, have estimated is still a very, very lower boundary of any real, real costs to the economy. How could the COVID pandemic change this equation for workers, entrepreneurs and governments in the long run? According to researcher Michel Deboux, a doctor who led a French study on suicidal thoughts last year, there are indications that the mental health crisis will have a long tail. His survey, for example, showed more people reported considering suicide when restrictions were lifted than when they were first put in place. There may be a silver lining to the crisis. As mental health takes a more central place in debate, it could spur governments to review policies in a way that helps both mental health and the economy. In that respect, the OECD has three main recommendations. Improve training of frontline workers, intervene sooner to help people, and, crucially, integrate mental health into all policy areas. What I fear is that if we're not able to provide a response to this distress, to this depression, rather than finding a population that is able to rebound in the spring, we will still be in a state of distress at that moment. That's why it's an issue today. It's an issue for the well-being of tomorrow. With the vaccine for the coronavirus being rolled out in many countries, attention is turning to managing infections over the next few months and then the hope for economic recovery. But for long-term prosperity, the underlying psychological effects of this pandemic may prove just as important. Sadly, I think we will have pretty significant consequences ahead of us in terms of mental health. I think we've not got past the worst. I think that it's still to come. Well, I'm, I'm joined now by Lord Richard Layard, a professor and founder and director of the Centre for Economic Performance at the London School of Economics. And I think it's fair to say he was one of the first economists to start working on happiness years before it was fashionable. And he spent the past few years researching mental health, trying to persuade policymakers to take it seriously as an economic issue, as well as a, a human and a social one. In fact, he's, he's just published a book, another book, Can We Be Happier? Ethics and Evidence. Richard, thank you very much uh, for coming on uh, Stephanomics. Yeah, lovely to talk. Um, just to think about COVID first, and then I know that we also, are, I'm very keen to talk about sort of broader uh, issues around this. But, you know, we heard there uh, some of the concern about the mental health implications of COVID. You know, we've had a massive recession. Recessions always make people unhappier, um, by and large. Um, but the added impact on mental health of fear of COVID, uh, the social isolation of those in lockdown, you know, there are now a lot of policymakers worried about this. You know, how do you view uh, the mental health impact of COVID? 
Well, there's very good evidence that mental health has deteriorated um, during the lockdown, and it's particularly affected people who were already more uh, likely to have poor mental health, which means young people, women and poor people. So it's a disequalising effect, um, as well as a, a bad thing uh, all round. But I think the thing which I feel strongest about is that um, the situation for mentally ill people has been very, very bad um, from before COVID. Basically, in this world, if you're physically sick, you get treated, and if you're mentally sick, uh, you don't get treated. Um, in most countries, uh, if you look at the surveys that have been done of people in households where you then uh, diagnose whether they have a mental health condition or not, uh, you find that under a third of the people with a mental health condition are, are receiving any treatment or have recently received any. I mean, we would think this was outrageous if it was the case for any equally serious uh, physical condition. And these are serious conditions. I mean, depression is a more disabling condition uh, than asthma, arthritis, um, angina, many other characteristic uh, physical illnesses. Um, uh, and, of course, it causes a massive economic cost in terms of, of uh, people being either out of work altogether or absenteeism or presenteeism. Um, and yet, uh, the treatment rates um, are as low as I said. So... Uh, I, th I think that uh, we have to take advantage of COVID uh, and the alarm which it's caused over mental health to really address this problem. Uh, this is a great moment to do it. Um, I, I should say to listeners outside Britain that we have managed, actually, to get the British government to address this problem more seriously than most other governments over the last uh, 10 or 12 years. And we have created a completely new service for evidence-based psychological therapy within our National Health Service, which is now treating um, nearly two-thirds of a million people each year with good recovery rates, um, as of the same sort of level you'd expect from trials, uh, which means over 50%. So it can be done, um, but even the British programme is behind schedule at the moment, uh, was before COVID. So it, it is extraordinary how difficult it is to get policymakers to take this seriously, in spite of the massive suffering, obviously, human suffering, the most serious aspect of it, but also the big impact not only on uh, the simple e economics that I mentioned, but also a very big impact on physical health. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons mental health uh, causes uh, so much uh, absenteeism and so on is that it also deteriorates a person's uh, physical health. And therefore, the amount of physical health care which a person gets with a given physical illness is 50% more if they're mentally ill. That's another huge uh, burden on our economy. So there are all these reasons why we should be taking mental health a lot more seriously and let's hope that the, the COVID experience makes people do it. Well, you mentioned there that you have had some success uh, getting the UK to focus on it, but I wonder how successful we've been in integrating it into our thinking about other policies you know, because it's, there's still a tendency to sort of put it in a different box and it might even be a risk after COVID that there's less money going into that because of other things that are perceived to be more central to, to 
economic policy. So how do we address that, that it's treated in isolation from other economic policies and other social policies? Well, obviously, as as people like to say, prevention uh, is better than than cure. My feeling is that we we know a certain amount about prevention and the most obvious area um, is the school system, which is a, a, a tremendous lever we have. Um, to improve the mental health of the whole population. And remarkably, we found in studies which we've done, including the famous so-called ALSPAC data uh, base uh, from Bristol, we found that schools have as much an effect on the mental health of children as parents. Now, this is very, very important. They just are having that effect. Uh, and this shows, you know, if, if they, as it were, can have such a big differential effect, um, we should exploit it to make sure that they are doing, uh, the worst schools are doing as well or better than the best schools. Uh, and I think that there's very good um, evidence-based programmes for um, teaching good mental health habits which could be used right throughout the school curriculum. Um, I've been involved in developing one called Healthy Minds, um, which had very good effects in a proper trial, which was a a four-year curriculum for secondary school pupils. But um, we really should be getting schools to take the well-being of the children as one of their main objectives, uh, equal, I would say, to the academic development of the children. And uh, this will probably only happen, given that we are now in an age of measurement, if we measure the well-being of the children. So, remarkably, uh, our Prime Minister, (laughs) Theresa May, promised at one point uh, to organise the measurement of well-being of, of, of children in schools so that each school would know whether its children were, as it were, moving from year to year upwards relative to their uh, uh, cohort in the country as a whole or or not. Absolutely nothing has happened about it. (laughs) Uh, Some excellent people are trying to get a a pilot going in Manchester. Uh, But this, I think, you know, across Europe, this should be uh, one of the, the key steps in, in what I think of as the well-being movement. Uh, I mean, I think of myself as part of a well-being movement to try and shift the priorities of the society to, ultimately, the well-being of the population, both the child population and the adult population. And there are a, 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 a whole series of building blocks in doing that. But I think it's also incredibly important that we just change the overall objectives which our policymakers um, have in mind. I mean, what they think uh, matters to people is just not borne out by the evidence. I mean, if you look at the evidence in many different ways, you can look at the evidence of what's important to people, and people have now been discovering it in COVID, of course. Uh, Well, here are the different ways you can examine this. You can simply measure how happy people are, um, and then get all kinds of other information about their situation in life and see which bits of their situation best explain how happy they are. That's one approach. Another approach is to ask them, what do they worry about uh, from day to day? You get the same answers. The same answers are always this. The top worry that people have is health. 
and and they, and that includes the mental health their own their parents mental health their children's mental health then physical health uh, that is is, is is for most people only a worry in the last uh, two or three decades of life um then uh, the next things that people worry about are relationships. And we know it ourselves. We're honest with ourselves. We know that these are the things we worry about, our close personal relationships in the family, our relationships at work, and maybe other dimensions of work are also important, whether it's mind-bendingly boring or whatever, um, and then community. Only after that comes income, and yet our politicians absolutely assume that the number one concern that people have is their income. But one of the reasons that governments do that is that the people voting for them also think money makes them happy. I think that is part of the disconnect. It's not just politicians. And Daniel Kahneman made himself famous by many insights, one of which was that people, of course, misforecast uh, the importance of getting more income or a bigger house. But I, I come back, though, to the survey, uh, which I was slightly involved with, the survey done by Sainsbury's, Grocers, as it was, but it was a survey of the whole population. And it showed that the, the, um, when people are asked to rank money and debt against all the other things that I talked about, it comes sixth. So um, I'll, I'll tell you what I think the, the reason is that politicians think like this. Um, is that they don't think that people think that um, these other worries that they have um, are things that the state can in any way help them with. So it's a fairly recent thing for, for people really to think that the state can do too much about income. But it's now firmly in people's minds that the state is responsible to a degree for people's incomes, uh, for their education, uh, and I suppose now we would say for their physical health. But given that we now have good evidence-based ways in which we can help people with these personal problems, uh, their mental health, uh, addictions, domestic violence, all these issues which are now becoming coming up into the public arena, partly because people are beginning to realise that the state can offer support. It's not a matter of forcing people to be happy, but offering them support when they're struggling. Um, that this is going to be, undoubtedly, in my view, the great, great area of development of state activity. It's not very expensive. Uh, it saves a lot of money. It'll save a lot of money on prisons. It'll save a lot of money on physical illness and so on. Um, but we are going to be seeing um, the big development um, over the next decades of support for families, for children, for loneliness in old age. All these things are going to become within the ambit of things which, uh, which the, the state and the population expect the state to provide. I mean, I think if we'd had this conversation 10 years ago, and certainly when you first started writing, Richard, about happiness... You were very much on the fringes, not of economics as an economist, but in thinking about that. Um, and now uh, it's very much what you're saying is tapping into a vein that's very mainstream, the idea that economic growth uh, is not the solution to everything, that the quality of our lives and, and of economic growth matters as much as the quantity. Um, 
But if so, if we were, if you're uh, sitting in government across Europe or in the US, incoming uh, President Biden, thinking, how do I really incorporate this in policy and as part of my building back better, as everyone talks about? If you're going to build back better in in this direction, briefly, what what's a big what are the pieces of that? The first thing actually is the methodology. Uh, I mean, when people go um, to the finance minister asking for money, uh, I want them to be justifying their request by saying, well, this is the effect it would have on well-being and this is cost-effective way of improving well-being because there'll be a big effect uh, per, uh, per, per unit of cost in terms of uh, improved well-being better bang for the buck, and the buck should be thought of as money and the bang should be thought of as well-being. Um, so I, I want a, that change in mindset and in procedures in the operation of government, and we've been trying to educate uh, the British civil service um, to a degree successfully in, in how to do this, because there is now this massive evidence available on what the effects on well-being are of all the different things that you might uh, do and that happen in life, so we need to be using that that evidence. That's that's number one. But then, if you say what priorities would come out if we did that, uh, then I think we're going to see that uh, they're very different. Um, the idea that you build back better by building a lot of physical structures, roads, railways, lots of of new 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 physical buildings and so on is much, much less cost-effective than rebuilding proper services uh, for children, proper services uh, for families, a proper health service and obviously proper social care, proper support for old people um, in, in uh, conditions of extreme loneliness. All the, all the problems that people actually spend most of their time worrying about uh, are things which the state can, with small amounts of money, make a massive difference to. And I think we need, I would call it the social infrastructure, we need to be building the social infrastructure rather than focused on thinking the physical infrastructure is either way to produce overall a better society or to level up. We should be levelling up through the social, mainly through the social services. Well, that's an uplifting note to end on. Richard Layard, Lord Layard, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on all things economic. Remember, you can always find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, you can also follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced as ever by Magnus Hendrickson, with special thanks to Professor Richard Layard, William Horobin, Anja Nussbaum, and Gaspar Subag. Lucy Meakin is the executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. 